Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Godwin, and I am the host of the Confessions of a Dealmaker podcast. This is episode one, part two, Reasons to Hire a Business Broker. I'm excited to start through part two of this with my co-host, Farah Bass, who's our operations manager here at the Exit Strategy Group. Um, I feel like in the first part, we discussed a lot of the kind of well-known topics that mm-hmm. sellers may be aware of, business owners may be aware of when it comes to selling a company. Mm-hmm. Part two, we're about to get into more of the, I think the, the very detailed nitty gritty part that maybe people don't know how important these factors are in selling a company. Yeah, I see this as if you're a business owner, these are the things maybe I wish I would have known before I try to sell it on my own or maybe the things that uh, I wouldn't have even thought of. You know, Maybe part one was what I knew but didn't, didn't uh, thought think was as valuable as it was, and, and part two is uh, the things I wish I would have known. Right, and these thirteen reasons are developed from deals we've seen not close, mm-hmm. and attempts we've seen sellers make on their own, or maybe newer brokers make these mistakes as well. So, mm-hmm. so no matter if you're a a buyer, a seller, or a broker, I feel like there's some value here you can get. Hopefully. That's the goal. If we do our job. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to jump right in. So we finished the last episode talking about deal making. Mm-hmm. There's a topic we kind of breezed over, but in this episode, I want to spend some more time going over that. Well, so we're going to start with the SBA and how the SBA can be valuable to buyers and sellers alike. Mm-hmm. So... One trend I've seen in the business brokerage industry, and when I first started, one of the things I was told is avoid SBA deals. Avoid, And so for those that may not know, the SBA, the Small Business Administration, has some lending products available for owners of companies and buyers who are acquiring companies. And these products are, are great because they allow buyers to purchase companies with very small equity injections and down payments. Um, I won't speak to what those terms are. I'll let an SBA lender do that. We would be happy to introduce you to an SBA lender. We have about 16 that we work with on a regular basis. They're all fabulous. Um, I'll tell you some kind of brief educational um, overviews of, of SBA products that we deal with on a daily basis. So again, I'm not an SBA lender. This is not lending advice. This is not financial advice. It's just purely for educational purposes. So the SBA works with local banks to offer lending products that allow um, buyers of businesses to acquire them for very low down payments. Typically, the minimum is a what they call a 10% equity injection, so 10% of the total project. So not just the purchase price of the business, but the working capital requirements, the closing costs, so 10% injection into the deal value. So this allows a, a person purchasing a business to invest 10% of the total project cost to acquire a business that they may be able to regain their down payment within the first six months of that acquisition. Mm -hmm. So let's say if you're, you know, you're a person who's in corporate America, you want to cash out your 401k, you want to start working on your own. Say you've got, you know, a hundred thousand dollars put away that you can spend on a business acquisition. You could potentially do a million dollar deal Mm -hmm. as long as you have some reserve capital to live off of. But if you can invest a hundred thousand dollars, you could potentially do a million dollar deal and that million dollar business could produce anywhere between say $500,000 a year in net revenue all the way you know maybe down to um, 
250000 depending on what the industry is and what the multiple is. But it allows someone to invest a minimal amount of capital to get into a business um, that they normally would have to pay cash for or have seller financing. The, the downside to working with SBA lenders is, and again, let me also re, you know, add this, you're not working directly with the SBA. You're working with banks that have been given funds from the SBA who are working uh, to uh, loan out SBA products, right? So the two main ones are the SBA 7A loan, which is a business acquisition loan, and the second one is a, 50, uh, a 504 loan, which we use for the acquisition of assets, so um, capital improvements or real estate. We most commonly deal with seven A's. But when I when I first came in the industry, one of the things I was told is stay away from SBA deals. They take forever, they're a headache, and they never close. Mostly, uh, I was told that you should convince, not convince, you should advise sellers to expect seller financing. Which in most cases, in, in businesses like restaurants and retail where there's a higher failure rate, so lenders are more apprehensive, that does apply. But when I started to learn about these SBA products, I realized there was a great opportunity to lean into that mm -hmm. and, and understand it. So I, I wanted to spend as much time when I first started understanding how these products work so we can utilize them and help our clients and help not only sellers, but help buyers too. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, we, have, we've, we still have had great success with SBA deals. I mean, yeah. you can, you can relate, you know, um, speak to that. I mean, the majority of our deals that go under contract close. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and what I was going to say, I was going to ask you, like, what do you think is the difference? Why would you, why would someone say coming into this, that it's so difficult to work um, with this type of lending and maybe to avoid this type of deal? And what is the difference in what we have seen? Because from, from my experience, I feel like a lot of our deals have to do with SBA lending. Um, and are, like you said, are, the close rate is extremely high. I can only think of two that went under contract and did not close because of the loan. Mm -hmm. And the, f sorry. Yes, I think the first one was because when the underwriters got to the, the package, they had determined that the buyer didn't have enough transferable experience to work in that industry, and so they deemed it too high of a risk, and they didn't move forward. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember what the other one was for. I believe there was only two. But it was, it was, it's definitely not the norm, right, mm -hmm. for what we see. Why? So one of the factors that contributes to, to the success of SBA loans is the quality of financials and quality mm -hmm. of earnings. Mm -hmm. And many business owners have very creative accounting habits and bookkeeping habits. So it may be difficult to show where the, their income is inside of the P&L and the tax return. Mm -hmm. um, understanding what the SBA is looking for first, they, they want clean financials and they want to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that everything that's been given to them is true and accurate. Mm -hmm. um, they pull transcripts from the IRS and so they're verifying what's been delivered to them versus what's been filed. And they're making sure the business is going to be sustainable for a buyer and also for, for them as the lender because they're on the hook for that loan, part of that loan, if they don't, uh, if the borrowed defaults. Mm -hmm. So 
a lot of business owners are not in the position to meet those underwriting requirements. Mm -hmm. Let's say if there's bad accounting habits or they're not up to date on their tax returns. We see often that there's business owners who they are maybe two years behind on filing. They just, you know, extension after extension after extension on their, on their 1120 corporate return. And they're, they're fine playing that, you know, game with the IRS but when it comes to selling, now they need those financials to be up to date, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes a challenge mm-hmm. because the that's what lenders are going to go off of is the tax returns. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go off of your handwritten ledger <laughs> or your uh, shoebox of cash underneath your bed. <laughs> They're going to underwrite the deal based on provable income, right? And, mm-hmm. and most qualified buyers are going to as well. And what I've noticed to be true is the type of buyers, and this is very important, this may be the most important thing on this topic to for, for sellers to understand. You are competing for buyers. The best buyers are going to be looking for the best businesses. And they want to make sure they can leverage their capital to its maximum potential. And, and they're going to look for a business that has the quality of earnings to qualify for lending. Even if they're not getting lending, they want to make sure that the quality of earnings is there. Mm-hmm. So when you have that quality of earnings, and what quality of earnings is, it's basically how can you prove the income? Is everything clean? Mm-hmm. Those businesses typically get a higher multiple. Mm-hmm. They, they sell for a higher price. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very often we work with a seller, and they, they want to achieve that higher value valuation and exit price, but they, there's not able to because they can't prove their income. They may have, um, a lot of hidden expenses that are buried in through the P and L that you can't be really unwound to show where their income is. Mm -hmm. So there's not enough income to support the loan. Mm -hmm. So it's very important if you're thinking about selling in the next two years, next year, next three years, even Further than that, to think about what are SBA lenders looking for, because how can that maximize the value of my company? If I can open myself up to more buyers, then there's more competition. Mm-hmm. If if you are only relying on a cash buyer, you're now subject to let's say 10% of the market versus before you maybe applied to 80% of the people that were looking in that in your industry. Right. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Like that's not something that you can just say, I want to sell my business tomorrow. What do I need to do? A lot of times when you're prepping to become, um, uh, the most easy to work with lender, the most easily easy to qualify, uh, is you need to do that ahead of time to um, work with a broker. Um, I think a lot of times people think, Brokers only come in right during the sale, um, but that's not the case. And in our situation, is a lot of times we are able to work with buyers ahead of the ahead of the pro- process and say, okay, what's your exit strategy? Let's work together. You know, one of the primary things is you need to get your financials in order. Um, and along comes with that is uh, working with an attorney and an attorney who or not an attorney an accountant both who knows what they're doing and can help you get those in order two, three, four years ahead of time so that um, it's easier to work with lenders. Exactly. This also goes for buyers too, because if you're borrowing money to buy a business, you have to have your personal financials in order, right? You have mm-hmm. to be able to prove your outside income and prove 
um, what you've made the last few years. You have to be able, you have to write a resume. You have to have a business plan. Mm -hmm. So before you go shopping for a business, you need to speak with lender and and find out what they're going to require of you to make Mm -hmm. sure a, that you can meet those requirements, but B that you have a shorter runway with the seller because if, if the seller has two deals come in and one of them has a 14 day or, or 21 day loan approval contingency and the other one has a 45 day and they're the same offer, who is the seller going to choose? If you've already done your preliminary work with a lender and you could say, yep, I can, we can get this at least a, a green light from the lender within 14 days because Sellers want certainty of close, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to pull a business off the market and miss a really qualified buyer. Mm-hmm. So as a buyer, it's important for you to know that you're competing for these deals too. Mm-hmm. So you should put your best foot forward and go ahead and get qualified with the lender. Again, if you if you would like to meet SBA lenders who, who close deals, we have about 16 that we work with. We'll be happy to introduce you to send us an email mm-hmm. and say, hey, I'd love to start talking to SBA lender and we'll get you introduced. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we do is we try to get buyers and businesses uh, pre-qualified prior to going into the process of selling or, or into due diligence because I think it moves everything along faster. It produces, a, to your point, it produces a better result for both parties. So that's, right. I think, going back to the where this conversation began on the SBA, one of the reasons of our success is we try to, look at every deal in the framework of how an SBA lender would look at it. Mm-hmm. And then we pre-qualify that deal before going to market. Mm-hmm. So now we have a larger pool of buyers we can work with. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, we know how to have the conversation with buyers so we can get them introduced to lenders and get everything done that needs to get done. So we have mm-hmm. a higher percentage of closing. And, and typically when we look at our stats compared to the rest of the industry, we have one of the highest close rates, if not the highest close rate, because mm-hmm. These are all the things we do on the front end. And so even if you're not going to work with us, these are things you need to know of, of how you can increase your likelihood of selling your company. Right. Y- you made a good point about bringing in other parties. And so that's a good segue to jump into the next topic is one of the benefits of working with a business broker is having a network of professionals that you can lean on to help you sell your business. Mm-hmm. Every business owner needs to have these four seats filled with someone you can pick up the phone and call. The first one is a CPA and accountant. Not necessarily just a bookkeeper, but you need to have a professional accountant working on your business. You do not need to be doing your own accounting. That's not your highest and best use. Um, The reason being is if you're the one doing your accounting, you're first not focusing on growing your business. Second, that's another role that needs to be filled when you exit the company, mm-hmm. right? So uh, uh, most buyers are not going to want to do their own accounting. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for quality of earnings, right? So so how someone may not trust the financials as much if you're the one doing the accounting. Um, but also that accountant's going to bring a lot to the table on what you need to do to prep your company to, to, to sell, but also just generally operating your company and, and being in compliance with all of your state and federal tax requirements and having another set of eyes on your books to look for problems to help you along the way. So that relationship I'd say is the most important you have to have is a good accountant. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I see, you know, every single time we have someone come to the table and they are 
not every single time. I'd say the majority of the time that someone doesn't have an accountant, uh, it is more difficult for them to move quickly in the process. Um, so if you're really looking to sell your business, I'd say that is, you know, first things first, get your financials in order. How do you do that? Get a trustworthy accountant. How do you do that? Well, if you're working with a broker, we have people that we work with, you know, day in, day out on deals constantly. And so we can introduce you to people who are already vetted, who we know are a produce quality service. Um, and then you don't have to even spend the time hunting for that person. Right. And again, if you're looking for an accountant or a business professional to work with, send us an email. We will be glad to introduce you to qualified professionals that we recommend and work with on a daily basis. Um, the second party that you need to have involved is an attorney. I can't count how many times we've seen a business transaction stop because we now have to have an attorney involved because there's some contract or document or, or um, entity structure that is just not right. Mm -hmm. That's not going to allow the transaction to move forward. Mm -hmm. And there's a topic for another podcast that I, I want to allude to now, but there's some complexity when you bring in a third party to your company. That's, that's a, uh, let's say a, another company that you're doing business with that you rely on mm -hmm. and how important those agreements to have are to have an order. If you're going to sell, for example, if you have a third party company that's providing a service for you, they, mm -hmm. they fulfill part of your service you offer your clients. That relationship will probably need to continue after you sell your company. So is, are those agreements in order so that they can be transferred to a buyer? And do you own all of your data? Mm. If you share data with third parties, mm. do you own those client relationships? So these are all conversations that need to be had with an attorney before you sell if, if you have those type of relationships. But, but just in general, having all your corporate documents in order, having a plan of how you're going to exit and what needs to happen. You know, any type of employee agreements or um, contractor agreements or non-competes, all that needs to be tied up nice and and uh, and tidy before you sell. So it's valuable that you have you you have to have an attorney. And working with a broker, you're going to have access to relationships of people that do that specific task. If if I was having a problem with my foot, right, pain in my foot, going to my cardiologist is not going to help, right? He he specializes in hearts. Mm -hmm. Attorneys are the same way. Attorneys specialize in things. They may specialize in a geography, so they're generalists and they do a little bit of everything. But a lot of attorneys specialize in specific disciplines, right? They, they specialize in business law transactions and real estate, or they specialize in wills and title and, and trust, or they specialize in family law. Um, you want to make sure that you're working with someone who specializes in, in the discipline that you need, right? Mm -hmm. Um Litigation attorneys, are that's specifically what they do. They're not typically the best for um, when you're trying to draft corporate documents because they may be a little more aggressive and vice mm -hmm. versa, right? If you need to go litigate, you may not want your family law attorney to litigate for you, right? Right. They're looking for resolution where sometimes you need to drop the hammer on somebody. Mm -hmm. So ha you have access to a larger network of professionals when you work with a, a broker who does mm -hmm. this on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Another position you want to have is a financial advisor. You want you want to make sure that you're having a conversation about what you're going to do with these funds after you retire. Mm -hmm. 
you sell your company, you're going to have this large pool of cash. How do you maximize that? Mm-hmm. Right. And also, how do you combine the three roles to minimize your tax liability and maximize your financial outcome? Mm-hmm. Right. So working with that whole chorus of professionals is going to yield a better result than doing it by yourself. You know, yeah. as we said before, business owners are very independent. We like doing everything ourselves. <laughs> but there's success in finding humility and knowing when you should lean on someone who is a professional in a certain avenue or mm-hmm. certain uh, vertical versus what you specialize in. Mm-hmm. And speaking to that of, of having professionals that specialize in certain things, I would say that having experts who are paid to be experts in their industry and to have all of the knowledge or at least know where to get it and have the resources allows you as the business owner to spend time growing your business. And I think that's where you need to be the expert. The seller needs to be an expert in, in growing the business um, and, and not in anything else. You know, it, it allows you to focus your time, capacity, energy, money on other things, more right. important things. What's going to yield the highest, highest return? Yeah. So transitioning to the next topic, reasons to work with a business broker Net, we have an existing network of buyers that are looking for acquisitions in certain industries, certain revenue ranges, certain geographic areas. And when you go to sell a company, you're doing it confidentially and you're trying to attract buyers. It's a lot of work to, to weed through people who may not be qualified, who may not be the right fit. So... One of the benefits is we have a network of buyers who are already looking for your particular business, and we're going to work with those buyers first because while we're bringing the listing to market, while we're putting the marketing package together, while we are getting ready to start attracting new buyers, we're already working with these existing buyers that we've had work with in the past who have been qualified, who have proven that they're um, – the financial ability to close on deals of this size, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a benefit that I think is often overlooked in working with a business broker is they're not just trying to find strangers. They may know someone who can um, who can acquire that business. Right. I'm thinking of, let's say we put a listing on market. We get 70 inquiries on it, and that's very low, but I'm just using a number. We get 70 inquiries on it of people looking to make an, uh, an acquisition in that industry, we qualify and vet them and we find that 45 of them are qualified to buy it and motivated to buy it, have the means to buy it. Uh, but only one person buys it. So that's 44 other people. And even depending on the, the person who buys it, that might be in, in the industry for another acquisition later on. But depending on uh, their situation, most of the time, those 44 other people are still looking to buy a business. So Having someone who are, you kind of have an in, instead of just putting your listing on market or your business on the market and saying, hopefully someone wants this or hopefully someone can find this and I marketed it in a way that's confidential, et cetera, et cetera. We can send this, you know, we can send a teaser out to our people who we already know want your business. And it moves the, I would say it moves the transaction along months uh, you know, in uh, speed ahead of time because we already have those people. We've already gone through that process. So for that insurance agency we recently listed, we had, I think it was 1,600 
targets identified that we were able to outreach to before before even working with buyers from outside of our network because we had a list of buyers we previously worked with and also we had a list of people that were possibly going to be interested so we were mm-hmm. able to generate traffic without ha- before even go to market mm-hmm. and I'll also well no I'm I'm a, we'll table <laughs> that topic for another day um it's important now, I just want to go over this real quick, and of what are the different types of buyers that buy businesses? Because I think yeah. that's good for, for sellers to know. So yeah. I believe there's four to five main categories of buyers that you'll run into, and they all have different motivations. So the first and most common is what we call an owner-operator. So it's someone who's buying the business to run it themselves. They want to put themselves in the driver's seat and be the operator. That's the most common, especially in businesses that are, say, under under a $3 million purchase price. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that's common, maybe under $2 million. That's very common for us to see. The second most common would be a strategic buyer. So that would be someone who's buying this company to add to their existing offerings or, or um, buying within their supply chain, within, within their... Um, industry they're buying this company to expand something they already have Mm -hmm. they may be a competitor they may be someone who is a um a vendor right they may not be a a, they may be a supplier or they may be a a contractor you use for a service you provide or a product that they provide to you the third but there's the third most common but there's two i think subcategories these are financial buyers so the first one would be private equity groups these are groups that have raised capital to go buy a business to generate a return they're typically looking for businesses that have non-owner operators in the company so they're looking for some management structure where they can drop an operator in the company and continue to grow it there's another subcategory to private equity groups, is, which is search funds, where they have a larger private equity group that has given them money to go find a business, right? So they're saying, okay, here's our criteria. You go be our boots on the ground and go find this, and then we're going to fund the deal and work together and give you a piece of the, piece of the pie as we're mm-hmm. closing the deal. The second major subcategory of a financial buyer are permanent capital groups, and that could be also called family offices. These are groups that they have... Funds that they have either put together through as a corporation, they may be a family trust or any type of entity that's put together to hold on to businesses. Whereas a private equity group, usually they're growing companies to later sell them or to be acquired. Permanent capital groups are buying companies to hold on to them. The last category is a uh, These are visa buyers or immigration buyers. They're buying companies to immigrate to the United States. Mm -hmm. And there's multiple different size transactions that fall into this. You may see um, the E2 buyers may be in the 150,000 to 250,000 range. They're looking for businesses with two employees, a certain amount of assets, and I forgot what all the requirements are for E2s. It's not something we run across much. Um, But some people do if they specialize in those industries. It's just not our typical... Um, listing type and they're and they're predominantly easy to sell businesses that have uh, easy transferable skills like say uh, pack and ships and um, those are very common landscape businesses are very common just kind of 
businesses that fit within those uh, those criteria, they have to have at least two employees. I know that's one of the main criteria. Above, that's not the owner. So that's the main types of buyers that we run into. Why, why is that important to know? Well, it's important to know what the buyer motivations may be and what they're looking for in a company. And also, with the way your company's structured, who's most likely to buy you, mm-hmm. right? So if you're you know, without getting into the weeds too much, if you're a local-based business that has the owner wearing many hats and not a lot of, well, let me start that over. (laughs) If you're a business where the owner is doing most of the work, it's very hard to convince a financial buyer that it's the right fit for them. Right. Because they're looking for a business that they can place someone in the company to run it. And if a lot of the transferable experience is with the seller and not with the team, it's more difficult to place one of those operators in that company and make it successful. So it's very important to know how much experience is within you and the company versus distributed to the team. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about qualification, how do you vet a buyer, what goes into that process, and why is that important? So on the subject of confidentiality, one of the things we're looking for when we meet with a seller is is we ask the question, is there anyone that you don't want us to talk to or competitors we should be wary of or previous employees that may have um, negative motivations and they would inquire on the business? For example, we have a company we're working with right now. We're bringing to market. There are specific competitors they've listed out that we are to not talk to, mm-hmm. to not respond to mm-hmm. at all, um, because the, in their business, there's the the competitors are very close geographically. Mm-hmm. So we don't want their we don't we don't want the competitor to know they're on the market because they may try to steal employees. Mm-hmm. So that could be a reason why that's so important to vet those buyers. But the vetting process is making sure that from based on the, the buyers meeting the seller's requirements. For example, if the deal is not SBA financeable and the seller is only willing to offer a small portion of seller financing, we need to make sure that the buyers have the ability to close the deal to the seller standards. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a cash-only deal, there's no seller financing, then they have to have the funds to, to make that acquisition. Mm-hmm. And so we don't warranty or guarantee that the buyers have met those standards, but we ask them to give us the information to prove that they mm-hmm. are, as long as that's the seller's requirement, mm-hmm. to prove that they are able to meet those standards. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't verify that information, mm-hmm. but we do our best to make sure that they're a good fit. Mm-hmm. And why it's important is you may have a buyer come in who doesn't have the ability to purchase the business. And now you're exposing confidential information to them, tax returns, uh, proprietary information. But they were trying to either raise the capital to purchase the business. We see that often. We'll see, oh, yeah, I need to talk to my investors. That's typically a buyer who is going within a network or someone they know to raise capital. Well, they may be disclosing that confidential information to all of those investors they're Mm -hmm. trying to raise capital for, right? Mm -hmm. So you're taking unnecessary risk. Mm -hmm. So that's why one of our qualification processes is asking for proof of funds or with um, 
financial buyers, we want to have like a letter of support or their white paper of how they're doing the acquisition. And for for most of those buyers, they've got like one yesterday, they got 50 million in the bank. Mm-hmm. We don't have to see their proof of funds. <laughs> you know, they, they have the reputation of, of closing deals. Unless a seller specifically asks, mm-hmm. hey, I want you to go through this process of vetting each buyer. Mm-hmm. We'll ultimately do what the seller asks us to do. But our baseline is we're going to make sure that they have the financial ability to close the deal. Um, if they're seeking SBA lending, we may ask them, okay, what's your transferable experience? If someone's buying an industry that's very technical, but they have no technical experience in the industry, they may need to talk to the lender to see if that's going to be a fit, if the lender's going to be okay with the lack of transferable experience. Or is that experience stay within the company and all you need is someone who can manage the business, right? Because then they could be a manager of a know the organization and they don't have the technical expertise, but they'll qualify because that technical expertise is staying with the company after the seller leaves. Right. So it's important to know all the pieces of the puzzle to know how to put the deal together and know mm-hmm. what's going to work, what's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And what I think one of the reasons we're so successful is we ask the buyers to walk through this process with us. We ask them if they're going to get SBA lending, then we need to get them SBA qualified. Mm-hmm. Have you talked to the lender? Do you have a letter of support? Mm-hmm. Where are you at in the process? So we know that, when a, we bring a buyer to a seller, that they're they're able to get the transaction done. Mm-hmm. I say, so to sum all of that up, I think it, it really comes down to two things. It comes to, A, protecting the seller. Um, so, you know, making sure they're signing NDAs, anyone who sees the business. So if you say, okay, you know, let's have a meeting, Jason, on this business. I want to ask more questions. I'm going to have my partner and my assistant and this person on that. Okay, well, they all need to sign the NDA. Like, it needs to be so that we're protecting the seller. Um, and also making sure that you're reading through those and making sure they're executed properly. Cause I saw within the last few weeks, twice, someone signed it with like a smiley face or something, or they put their name and the address over and over again. So I knew it wasn't valid. That's not a valid NDA. Um, and so we're going to do our job to protect all the parties involved and get it properly executed or you won't see the business, you know? Um, so a, to protect the seller, but B, I would say to move the transaction along quickly. You know, we don't want to waste the seller's time. Business owners are busy. I think we all know that. Um, And so if we're bringing every single buyer to have a buyer-seller meeting to the seller, we're wasting their time if they're not qualified, like you said, if they don't have the funds, if they don't have the means, if they're looking, maybe they're looking for a business that's two or three or four times the size of the business that you're offering, you know? And so I'd say, um, making sure they have proof of funds, they have transferable skills, they, you know, they meet all these criteria and that the, the business is the proper uh, fit for them. And also I would say when we create our marketing materials, we answer every single question, you know, that we're allowed to. We don't reveal any trade secrets or employee names or anything like that, nothing pr- proprietary, but anything that we can possibly answer before meeting the buyer and seller together um, is how we are able to protect the seller's time and only bring them the most qualified leads. That's an amazing point. One thing that's not on here that I just thought about, um, oftentimes we'll get a seller come to us and they say, I want to sell, but I already have a buyer. Mm. I've been talking to this buyer and they say they want to buy my business. Mm -hmm. I can think of one time in all of my years that that buyer actually bought the business. Mm -hmm. 
and that was recently. I can't remember which one it was. There was someone we we a lead we followed up and they said they actually closed with that bar. Yeah. But oftentimes you have a buyer who wants to buy the business, but they drag the seller along because they're not qualified. They're trying to make the deal happen. Mm-hmm. And so we'll see these deals stall. And and the sellers they're they're pausing signing with us because they would rather do the deal themselves and not pay a fee. Understandably. But then three months goes by, six months goes by, and we're still we're we're in contact with the seller. We're following up. Nine months goes by. Oh yeah, the buyer's putting the deal together. They're putting the deal together. They're they're doing this. They're doing that. They never close. Mm-hmm. Never. And it's because they're not qualified. Well, and it's because you know, to defend the sellers a little bit, it's not like they know oftentimes what to look for. That It's right. not, you know, I would say in that situation, a lot of times it's, they have great hope and faith in this person. Sometimes it's someone they know um, or have worked with in the past. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. However, having a broker on your side that say, can say and identify those, you know, yellow flags of, hey, this might not uh, work out. And, and also to that effect, hey, if, you know, if you work with a broker, you're able to produce competition. And so then we can say, hey, let's put this on market. Let's get you 10 more buyers or five or three, you know, even three more buyers who are qualified and eager to move forward. And we tell this buyer that you've been working with, oh, hey, I got other offers on the table. Maybe it'll move, move things along quicker. Maybe it won't. But what's the risk in trying? If you really want to work with this buyer, let's try to make it work. Um, but also there's no harm in having a backup plan and having backup offers. You're exactly right. I, I was just thinking of a transaction that happened a few years ago where the, the C, this was a company that was big enough to actually have a CEO in it. Um, they had about about 55 employees, 40 million in revenue or so. So a big company. One of their vendors that they did work for wanted to buy them. And this was taking place as we were bringing them to market. And the vendor was was trying to put the deal together before we were in play. And long story short, once we got in play, we first thing it is had a meeting with this buyer, with this buyer and said, okay, great. So you know the company, you you are familiar with their business, you know their CEO. What do you need to put the deal together? It's crickets. Hmm. And we started then putting pressure on them to get the momentum going and communicating that there will be competition because we're going to market. So if you want to put your best foot forward, then let's submit an LOI. Crickets. So... Three weeks goes by while we're prepping the deal for market, getting the marketing pack together, going to market. And now they've they've gone quiet. They've ghosted. And we go to market. We get 60 or 70 NDAs day one. Huge competition. We end up selling the, the deal for um, more than what people told us we could sell it for because mm-hmm. there's competition. And... What ended up happening, this is speculation based on the evidence we have available, is that this buyer was actually trying to steal the CEO and get as much trade secret information as they could. Mm -hmm. And as soon as a broker got involved, they knew they couldn't do that, so they stopped. Mm -hmm. 
They knew that the seller would no longer, the, the seller was not going to be the point of contact for giving them the information they wanted, right? And the seller was a very nice person and would probably have just given them whatever they asked for because there was trust. Right. But they went completely quiet as soon as we showed up on scene. They wanted nothing to do with us and they disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know for sure they were bad actors, but there's some evidence on some communications that we were told that they may have been trying to steal the CEO. Mm. So it's important to have a intermediary involved in the process who can be the buffer between mm-hmm. the buyer and seller, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but also to create the competition and momentum because everyone benefits if there's competition mm-hmm. and momentum mm-hmm. because the deal closes faster as a higher likelihood to close. So if the mm-hmm. buyer is motivated to get the deal closed. They're mm-hmm. going to want to close in a relatively short amount of time because it's costing them time, money, and energy the longer it's on the table and not closing. Mm-hmm. The longer you're in due diligence, the longer you're in lender prequalification, the longer you're waiting for closing, the more money it's costing the buyer. The more money they're having attorneys, accountants, and fees, the more time that's wasted. So it benefits them to get the deal closed faster, and it benefits the seller because they're getting a fair market price because mm-hmm. we've created competition for that listing. Mm-hmm. And so going to market... You want to make sure that you're not just showing it to one buyer because then they have no motivation to get the deal done. They think they have as much time as they need. Mm-hmm. So they can uh, they can offset their risk by wasting your time and by, excuse me, taking as much time as they need to make the decision. Mm-hmm. So when we move on to this next topic, um, keeping deals together as the, the 11th reason of why to use a business broker. We have this knowledge and experience of what kills deals. We have the knowledge and experience of how to push a deal forward, right? how to create momentum, how to keep it from stalling, and how to make sure that everything is getting done that needs to get done for that mm-hmm. business to transfer ownership. Mm-hmm. So even if a seller has a buyer that is truly has the best intentions, is truly qualified, and they are ready to move forward, there are still complications that occur when acquiring a business. It is a complicated transaction. So having a broker, what you're saying is having a broker can continue that process and make sure that everybody is aligned, that everybody is communicating properly, and that the deal doesn't die on the closing table. Right. There's this famous saying, it's true in real estate transactions and business. Time kills deals. What does that mean? Time is the number one killer of deals. You have, there's a window of time it should reasonably take to do a transaction, whether it's real estate or business. Mm-hmm. When you exceed those time frames, the, the likelihood of the deal not closing grows exponentially mm-hmm. because you have frustration taking place, impatience, lack of trust develops, right? So if a buyer is, if a buyer is having to get multiple extensions on due diligence because they're not able to meet those timelines, the seller has instantly lost faith in that buyer. And also, if the, if the seller cannot produce documents in a relatively timely manner, the buyer starts losing confidence in the seller. Mm-hmm. So the long the, after you go past the expected timeline of that when that deal should close or when due diligence should conclude or lender financing should be approved, the higher likelihood that deal will not close at all. Right. And so it's so important to keep momentum and keep clear communication between the parties so that if an issue is arising, there's an answer of why, mm-hmm. right? And there's, because what closes business deals is trust. If I'm selling a piece of real estate, a building down the street, 
the buyer can hire an inspector to go look at the building physically, take pictures. They can hire an attorney to do all the title work they can to dig up everything on the deed and the history of the property. Any legal issues may arise. We can hire an environmental consultant to do a phase one, phase two to know if there's any environmental exposures. I can do all of that without ever speaking to the seller or stepping foot on the property from, from the safety of my desk. Mm -hmm. You can't do that with a business. You've got to look the seller in the eye and get an understanding for what role they play in the company, what risk there may be involved with the transaction, and how much trust you have in what they built. Because it's like it's like selling, as you've heard me say before, the, the golden goose that, the invisible golden goose that lays the golden eggs, right? Um, I can tell you, yeah, I have 250,000 golden eggs every year that this business produces. You can't see them. You have to just take my word for it, mm -hmm. right? So you have to have enough trust in the information that's being conveyed, right? So you have to mm -hmm. build that relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's very crucial to getting a deal done. Mm -hmm. So what role do you or any business broker play um, in that communication process? Why can't, um, or why is it easier maybe to have a business broker help with the communication process and to play as a buffer between buyer and seller? On the basic level, it's someone who's aware of what may not be being said, right? The, un mm. the, the nonverbal communication, the whole process that buyers go through emotionally and sellers go through emotionally in selling a company. So being the na the person who can navigate those, mm -hmm. um, those processes and, and work with the parties, that's so crucial. And also, sometimes you need to have a buffer between the parties because you can take emotion out of it, right? Like mm -hmm. if, if, say, you're the buyer of this company and you requested a longer due diligence time frame and the seller is declining that longer time frame, having a buffer between the two parties to help both people get what they want mm -hmm. so that they both trust each other and they're more likely to move forward with a transaction versus it feeling like it's, it's a personal mm -hmm. issue, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just an example. But there's, there's so many different ways that a broker can act as the buffer between the parties. We had one uh, six months ago where both parties were um, brash, maybe is the word. <laughs> and so sometimes the broker may need to translate what the person is saying mm -hmm. because it's just the way they talk. They may be a little more aggressive. They may be a little more um, competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, just using these as examples, but being a buffer between the parties helps the negotiations not be personal. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I think it's natural to have emotion when there's this much money involved. And for a lot of sellers, if you've built your company, you've spent your whole, you know, your blood, sweat and tears in this company and you want to see it succeed. Um, and then a buyer is coming forward and saying, I'm offering you this much money. It's a lot of money involved. And so it takes one uh, misinterpreted tone of voice or one uh, misinterpreted use of, of language or personal dig where if, if I'm as the buyer coming to you and saying, you know, expressing my frustration and telling them this is the terms I'm looking for, you can expl explain the terms to the seller 
without the tone of voice, without the frustration and in, in an emotionless uh, manner and kind of go back and forth with those negotiations and make sure that everybody wins, um, you know, and, and work for the benefit of everybody involved. Right. So not only are we helping with negotiations, we're not negotiating for the parties. We're the conduit of communication right. between the two parties. Right. We're also helping both parties get a win mm-hmm. because in, in this business, you can't bully your way into a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, that applies in real estate transactions. You can see someone bully their way through a deal and it work. But in business transaction, because trust is so important, you can't bully your way through a deal. And so both parties need to feel like they're getting a win. They need to feel like they're getting what they need out of the deal. And so helping them navigate that, because our, our role is a transaction broker. We are representing the transaction. Mm-hmm. And so our goal is to help be a conduit of communication to make sure that the deal is moving forward. Mm-hmm. Creating that buffer between the buyer and seller. Mm-hmm. So to, to wrap this up, the last point, the point number 13 of the reasons why to use a business broker, which you alluded to earlier, is I think the most important, which is why mm-hmm. we save this for last, is time. What should the seller be focusing their time on and their attention on? Growing the business. If you're, if, if you just, let's use logic for a second. If you are constantly involved in the business and you're constantly involved in the strategy and the growth and you're dedicated to bringing in, you know, more profit and then you decide I'm going to sell. And then you take all of that or even half of that energy and time and focus on what it takes to sell. The money is going to show, the, 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 the numbers are going to show that, you have t- that you're not focusing on that anymore. And so a buyer is going to come in and say, what happened in the last six months? Why are profits down? Why is this down? Why is that down? What's struggling? Why are things, you know, why are things not the way they were? And that's not attractive to a buyer. So if you want to get the most bang for your buck, you want to get the most uh, out of your sale and leave uh, the most, not leave anything on the table when you sell, you have to continue focusing on growing that business and continue making it as saleable as possible. What does that mean? That means not spending time on the sale and spending time in the business. So... If you are, you're the seller and all of a sudden you start becoming distant and disappearing from your employees and your customers, what are they going to think? If now your time is now spent on the phone, answering emails, you're being, you're hiding your email now from your employees. Um, you're, you're walking away to have conversations all day because you know, it's a, you're going to spend four to five, six hours of your day trying to sell this company. What, are they going to start to think? Because they may not, you may not tell them Mm -hmm. that the company's for sale. They're going to start making their own assumptions, Mm -hmm. right? So, so A, you know, you are now focusing your time not running the business, which Mm -hmm. is your most crucial role. B, now, there's people in your life who are now going to start asking what you're doing. Mm -hmm. They're going to ask themselves, your customers, your employees. And there's going to be things that start getting less attention inside of the company. Mm -hmm. And at this most crucial point where you need the company to be running 
on all cylinders and running as smooth as you can, producing the most profit, you're now taking your eye off the ball. Mm -hmm. That's a recipe for disaster. Mm. Yeah, and, and that is not a dig. That is not um, doubting the capacity of any uh, business owner. I think that is just logic and human ability. We only have the ability. We, we described the other day, you have a battery every day. And, and if you're using your battery, so much of your battery on things that you shouldn't be or aren't your highest and best use, then you don't have as much capacity to focus on what is your highest and best use. And, and I think that is what is probably the most important reason to hire a business broker is you have someone who can not only have the expertise, not only have the network, not only have the knowledge, but the time to focus on finding you a buyer and vetting the buyer so that your time spent selling the business is so minimal. You're only speaking to the people that are like, here's my money. You know, hopefully that doesn't always happen, but you're only speaking to the people that are most qualified and ready and willing to buy your business. And so that reduces the time spent on that um, exponentially, I think. Right. It also is a message to the buyers when they are talking to you, the seller directly that, okay, well, if, if you're willing to advertise your business yourself, how else are you running your company in the same manner? Mm. Well, you're cutting quarters and not going through the proper mm. channels and not just not hiring professionals, right? So you're sending a different message. You're sending the message of, it's you're doing you're you're more of a do-it-yourself type versus being a professional. That's fascinating. I would have never thought of it that way. At least that's how I look at things, right? right? Like when I when I so when I'm trying to buy a piece of real estate, and I see that the seller has listed I, in my email right now. I inquired on a piece of real estate I'm looking at. Um, the seller is the one selling the property. Mm-hmm. I automatically know a few things. They are hard to work with because they don't want to pay a commission. So obviously they're going to want to make sure that they maximize every penny of that business. So I'm going to, I'm not going to ever probably be able to negotiate with them. Mm-hmm. So I know they're difficult. I know they're probably greedy. And I know they probably have trust issues. Instantly I know that. So I'm turned off when I yeah. see a seller selling a piece of real estate. Yeah. I already know that it's, it's probably going to be impossible for anyone to buy that piece of real estate. Even if it's not actually the case. I mean, that's, I think that speaks to like the, the assumptions that we make just right off the bat. And that's why it's so important. Um, you have to put your best foot forward and you have to mitigate all of those assumptions that people could make or might make or do make about you as you sell your business. Cause I know I'm not going to waste my time. I already know right. I've been, I've been down this road. I already know this dance. Mm-hmm. And so our most highly qualified buyers are the same way. Mm-hmm. They've been through the dance. They know exactly what's to come mm-hmm. and they're not even going to look. Because for example, when when you're viewing a listing on the market, you can see who the broker is. And mm-hmm. if it's the person, if you see it's just a person's name and they're not a broker, you <laughs> automatically know it's a seller, mm-hmm. right? And then all I have to do then is take your name and search it into whatever the business registry is for that state. I already know what the company is done. <laughs> I've already solved the problem. There's no need for confidentiality. I can do my own research now and Spoiler figure out who you are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, so it, if you think, okay, I'm going to save 10, 8, 6%, whatever the commission is based on the size of your company on doing it yourself, this is all the things that you're leaving on the table mm-hmm. that you haven't thought about because mm-hmm. this is the first time you're doing this. No fault to you, right? No yeah. fault. You're only supposed, I mean, not supposed to. 
typically you only get to sell a company once. Mm -hmm. You're very fortunate if you can build more than one company you mm -hmm. sell. But being humble enough to at least ask questions and, and know that you don't have it all figured out. Because I've had, to, this has been one of my struggles. I have to be humble enough to know that I'm not the smartest person in the room. I need to go find who the smartest person is in the room and hire them, mm -hmm. or recruit them, or mm -hmm. get them to, or work with them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and business owners, in their highest and best use, they're recruiters. Mm -hmm. Because if you're the person who is doing every task in your company, you are your company. Mm -hmm. You should be the person who is recruiting the people to do the task or the best of the task better at you and your company, right? That's mm -hmm. how you're going to create the most value. That's how you're going to create a company that sells for the highest price is by being a people magnet, as we talked about earlier today, mm -hmm. and, and being a recruiter, mm -hmm. right? And knowing how to vet and hire professionals to do the job because then you're going to get the best result and it's the most scalable mm -hmm. business process you can have. I was going to ask uh, what you would say to someone who's mostly or totally absentee where, you know, they own the business, but they're not directly working in the business. What would you say to those people when it comes to regards to time? But I think you already answered the question. The answer has nothing to do with time at that point. Hopefully they already understand the purpose of hiring the right person to do the right job. And if you're in that point, it doesn't come down to time always, unless you're focusing on another business maybe, or a hobby, or you're trying to retire, I'd say it comes down to having the right person do the job and uh, what is your highest and best use and what is the purpose of uh, confidentiality and, and all of the other points that we've made in this episode. So the people who have built a company that they do not have to show up to every day already understand the value of recruiting and hiring. Right. They already get it. Mm -hmm. They already know that their freedom comes from finding people who are living their purpose by fulfilling this service or, or providing this product, mm -hmm. right? So they already know that finding people who align with the mission, align mm -hmm. with the goals of the organization, and who can utilize their talents and skills to provide that product or service, mm -hmm. they're going to be the best fit to execute it. Mm -hmm. they, they already know that, right? That's how mm -hmm. they built a company that is able to be absentee or semi-absentee. So, so that's a little hack for business owners that if you want to know how do you build a company that has the most value, become a recruiter, mm -hmm. become a person that can get people on board with your idea and they're with you for the culture and, and fulfilling their own mission in life, not just to get a paycheck. Right. So I think all of this comes down to, I, I think, I hope that in these couple episodes that we've shared valuable tips on what it looks like and why you should hire a business broker in the sale or potential sale of your company or acquiring a company, I suppose. I think uh, whether or not it comes down to you hiring us, you should go through this process and take these points and say, okay, I'm going to interview whatever broker I decide to use and say, okay, how do you handle this? How do you, how do you, what's your network? What's your reach? What buyers do you have queued up ready to buy a business? Uh, how do you vet those buyers and, and kind of all of this whole process and interview them and make sure that they're right fit for you. Um, and, and you, cause you are paying money. So you want to find someone who is fighting for your win, um, and who knows what they're talking about and is going to dedicate, um, their all to making sure that you get to the closing table. Exactly. So spoiler alert, that is coming. I'm writing the outline for that as we speak. Sweet. How to hire a business broker. Well, probably that's the working title for now, but it's all <laughs> these things that you should know when you're hiring one, how to vet one. Mm -hmm. Because 
it's a, you get to do this one time, two times if you're lucky. You got to make it count. You got to find mm-hmm. the right person to do the job, mm-hmm. even if it's not us. I want to make sure that you, as the business owner, are hiring a person who's going to get you the best result. Mm-hmm. Not someone who does this part time. Mm-hmm. Not someone who uh, maybe sells residential real estate full time, mm-hmm. but they try to sell a business every now and then because mm-hmm. there's no way for you to have the information and the expertise to do this well if you if you're not in it and living it and you know, yeah. live and breathe it every single day. It's complicated. It's too complicated. Right. So I think this is a good spot to wrap up. If anyone so. has questions about this, you want to receive a copy of this, this will be available on our website. Fast way to get it to just drop us and just drop us a Email at info at confessionsofadealmaker.com. You can also, on social media, ask your questions. Recently, we had some viewers uh, submit their questions. I wanted, in the next episode, we're going to go over the, some of those, have a Q&A session. This one ran a little long, so we won't be able to do it today. <laughs> but we want to know your questions and what information you want to learn what type of guest you want us to have on, any suggestions of guests for the future. We want your feedback. We want your engagement. So if you follow us on social media, please engage. Give us your feedback. Tell us what you think of the episodes. Tell us who you want to see, any questions you have. If you don't follow us on social media, you should because we, one, appreciate your support, but two, we want to make sure you have access to this information. We're going to have some really interesting guests coming on in the next few months we're excited about. Um, We hope that you like and subscribe to this on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. That helps us grow this. This right now is all self-supported through our own efforts. We may be taking sponsors on in the future. It's another conversation for another day. But I want to thank every single one of you for your support through this process, for watching, for listening, for going along this journey with us. It's been a project that I've had in mind for the last few years. And I've really wanted to dive into to be able to share this information to help sellers and business owners out so they can maximize this opportunity. So I thank you for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.